0: You know, as, as I thought about what, what Glenn was mentioning, is negatives turned into positives, um, I just can't help but think of this year and, and how hard it's been in so many ways. And yet we've seen kind of the church... Uh, Bind together in a, in a way that uh, you know. I feel like we're closer in some ways. We some people have gone, and, and that makes us sad. And then and yet, because of the circumstances of people not being able to go to church in Bend, that that live in this community, they, they found us here, and we've just heard a lot of encouraging things from people that have kind of found this place and, and joined us. And it's it's uh, a, a lot of good is coming from it as well. And I just I love this church, love the people in it, and it's just neat to see the way it's brought us closer together. I believe so. Well. We're in the book of First Peter this morning, and uh, so far in First Peter, we've been establishing all that Jesus has done for us, and then how it impacts the way we live as Christians. And we've seen how believing and obeying the gospel gives us hope, makes us holy, and then today we're going to see how it enables us to love. And that sounds pretty good, doesn't it? A life full of hope, holiness, and love. So we're going to be in chapter 1. Uh, starting in verse 22, and we're going to go into chapter 2 to the end of, uh, not to the end of chapter 2, to verse 3 of chapter 2. You guys got worried there for a second. All the way to the end of chapter 2. Settle in. Not really. Uh, Peter's going to tell us that since or because we're born again, we should love sincerely and earnestly, and we should long for the Word of God. So here we go. Starting in verse 22, it says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, Love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again. Not a perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So, put away all malice, and all deceit, and hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So Peter starts this section off by establishing that Christians have been purified. Purified means that all impurities or contaminants have been removed. Something that has no impurities is perfect. That's the state of the Christian before God. And you might be thinking, well, how does that work? Because most of us would not claim to be without any impurities or defects, I I think, right? Anyone? Anyone? Yeah. No, probably not. But verse 22 says, we have purified our souls by obedience to the truth. Notice that it does not say that our souls were purified by obeying a list of rules or by doing good works. Our souls were made clean by obeying the truth. And this is a reference to the gospel message. That's the truth that's being spoken of. And we see this same idea in Ephesians 1.13, where Paul says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So it's consistent throughout the Bible that this this idea of the word of truth being the gospel. So to obey the, the truth of the gospel means that you have bowed or submitted yourself to its message. You have believed it unto salvation. A person who has done that has entered into a transaction with Jesus, where, where he has given us his righteousness, right? We are made pure, and we have given him all of our sin, which is all that made us impure. So it's, it's kind of like you've taken all of your dirty garments, all your gross, disgusting, dirty laundry. I guess I do this every week with joy. <laughs> She's not here, but thank you, honey. Uh, we're, we take all these dirty garments And we we give them to Jesus, and in exchange he gives us this pristine white robe of righteousness. And we're covered in that white robe of righteousness that Christ gives us, and that's what God sees when he looks at it. That's how we can say that we're pure. It's because of that. It's not our doing, it's all Christ's doing. So because of this, this is what should occur next. In verse 22 again, "...having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth," for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly and from a pure heart since you have been born again. So since your souls have been made clean by obeying the gospel, you are now able to love each other with that new clean heart. And he specifies the target of that love. It says brothers. Brothers refers to fellow Christians, your brothers and sisters that make up the church. But the first thing we should probably answer is the question, what is love? This is one of those words that can mean very different things to different people. There's a lot of different ideas of what love is. We just showed an Advent video during our Table Talk series on love this last Thursday. And in it, the guys that made it said that we often say, I love my mom. And we also say, I love pizza. Right? And I'm guilty as charged. I've said, I've made both of those professions of love in my lifetime. Now, hopefully there's a difference in the, the depth and quality of that love. Right? There is. There um, is. <laughs> As you probably already know, there are several different words for love in the Greek language. The primary words are storge. Storge is talking about familial love, like the the love that a mother has for a child. That's that love. Phileo is brotherly love. That that talks about that bond of friendship that we have. So Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love is what they call it. It's from that word phileo. Eros or eros is romantic love. That's you can kind of, you know, we're not going to go too far with that one this morning. But... That one's, you know, that one. And then there's agape, which is the unconditional self-sacrificing love. And this is what we think of as God's love. So in English, when we say, I love you, it can mean different things. In Greek, you could actually specify what you meant, which is pretty helpful. When I was young, you didn't say, I love you just flippantly. It was a big deal to utter those words. There was like, this is a big thing to tell somebody. And I've noticed that today it often gets kind of thrown around in a much more shallow and meaningless way. And, and it's kind of bothered me, but I'm thinking, well, if they had phileo, like I picture two girls going, you know, they hardly even know each other. They're casual friends. Sorry, Val's already shaking her head. This is a good analogy, you know, you know, they're, they're like, Hey, i see you tomorrow. Okay. Love you. Love you. Then it's like, do you though? Do you? And I'm thinking agape here. I'm like, do you really like that? Would you lay your life down? But they're, they're saying phileo. They're saying, you know, you're my friend and I'm happy about it. That's all it means. That was my girl voice. Do you like that? (laughs) Sorry. In verse 22, interestingly, both phileo, brotherly love, and agape, unconditional love, are used. And we don't see that necessarily when you read it, but they're both there. So verse 22, if I were to read it that way, it says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere phileo, agape one another earnestly from a pure heart. So it's assumed that Christians will have brotherly love for each other, and Peter's saying, hey, go even further and have this self-sacrificial, unconditional love for each other as well. And he gives two descriptors of this love, sincere and earnest. And we're going to talk about both of those more uh, in a minute, but first I I want to just make sure that you know that it's possible for us to do this. (laughs) That might sound funny, but it doesn't always seem like people think that it's possible or it's true. We can love brothers or brothers and sisters in Christ sincerely and earnestly. And the reason I'm pointing this out is because of two things that I've seen in the church. One, there are a lot of professing Christians that seem to really struggle with this. They have a hard time doing this. Maybe it's because they've been hurt or betrayed, even within the church. But, but something's happened to where they've closed themselves off, and this isn't even an option for them. And and that's one reason. The second reason, and I don't know if you've noticed this, but some people are really, really hard to love. <laughs> no, it's true. <laughs> it, some people just seem to go out of their way to be as prickly and miserable and unlovable as possible. I don't know if you I don't have anybody in mind. Mike, look up, you know. Uh, so So the question is, well, how can we love people if either of these things is true? Don't we get a pass? You know, if if we've been hurt by somebody or if we determine that someone doesn't deserve our love or isn't worth loving, don't we just get a pass at that point? And I know some of you are hoping that I'm going to say yes to that. No, you don't. And the reason that you don't is because, as I would lovingly remind you, Jesus didn't think that way. And praise God that he didn't, because I have betrayed him over and over. I have hurt him. I have added to the pain that he endured on the cross. I would go so far as to say that I have been cruel to him. And I've also made it really, really difficult for him to love me. And yet, he sincerely and earnestly does anyway. And he's proven that by going to the cross in my place and dying for me. In 1 John, or I'm sorry, just regular John, not 1 John, regular John. John 15, 12, Jesus said, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. And then he says, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. There have been times when I've hurt people and or made it very hard for them to love me. Even in this church, there's relationships where I've said things, done things, maybe not intentionally, but I know that there's been times when I've hurt people and I've made it very difficult to love me. And people have persisted to do so anyway. And I'm so grateful for that. What a remarkable thing in a throwaway society that somebody would persist in doing this. And I'm very grateful for that. And I've had to do the same with some of you people, just so you know. I've got a problem with you people. (laughs) It's like, we don't celebrate festivals, so you don't have to worry about it. But but the same is true. You know, this is reciprocal. We hurt each other. We give reasons not to love. And then we persist to do it anyway. This is what Jesus modeled for us, and he wants us to follow this, and then he wants us to model it for others so that they can see what Christian love looks like. So the good news is that neither of these conditions, these things that I've mentioned, make it impossible for us to do what Jesus has asked us to do, what he wants us to do. And the reason uh, that it's possible to love in spite of these realities is given in verse 23. He says, love one another sincerely and earnestly since because you have been born again. Not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. Perishable seed is talking about natural birth, and imperishable seed is talking about supernatural birth. Okay? And then he gives this example of, of, well, first he says, through the living and abiding word of God. But then he goes to Isaiah and he says, all flesh is like grass and all its glory, like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news or gospel that was preached to you. So, so he's saying the gospel, because of this new birth, because we're born again, the gospel is alive in us, and that means God's love is alive in us. Peter kind of gives the tale of two seeds here. One represents natural birth, one supernatural. But because we've been born of the Spirit or born from above, we've been made a new creature with a new heart that's capable of love that wasn't before. And, and it's something that enables, enables us to have that agape love like God has for us. So believing the gospel and being born again makes it possible, plausible, and even probable that we would love each other because of this new seed that sprouted through the living and abiding word that lives in us. Now, if you find yourself in a place where you are unable or unwilling to love your brothers and sisters in Christ, I need to warn you that you're, you're in a very dangerous place. And, and I say that humbly and Carefully, but but this could even mean, according to Scripture, that you don't really have the gospel living inside of you. You don't really know Christ if this is the case. And the, the reason I say this is because of passages like what, what we read in 1 John, chapter two and starting in verse nine. Now I want you to keep in mind when it says hate here, it means doesn't love. It doesn't mean like you wish somebody was you know dead. When, when it talks about hate, it just means you don't love them. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother, is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness, and walks in the darkness, and does not know where he is going, because the darkness has blinded his eyes. That sounds dangerous, doesn't it? You're walking in darkness. You, you, that, you're going to get hurt. You're going to hurt somebody else. It's not good. And then again he says in First John 3, verse 16, By this we know love that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our life for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. These warnings are here for our good. There are just too many people that I've known over the years that say that they're Christians, but they seem to hate and avoid the church at all costs. And when I say the church, I mean God's people, not the building. That simply doesn't add up. How can you love Jesus but hate his bride? But I want to get back to that question of what does this love look like? And I mentioned there are these two descriptors that he, he gives us here uh, as far as how we're supposed to love one another, sincerely and earnestly. Sincere just means without hypocrisy. You're not faking it or pretending uh, that, you know, to care when you really don't. Have you ever been around somebody that just they act like everybody's their friend and they act like they like you and, you know, they don't. It's just like, you know, mm-mm, sticky, sweet and all that. That's what it's talking about here. And, and according to folk history, this word sincere, it, it actually came from two Latin words, uh, sign without and Sarah wax. So without wax is the word. And, and the, the idea was that if you were a pottery maker in those days and you made a pot that had a couple of blemishes and maybe a little crack in it that you didn't want anybody to see. You'd, you'd fill it with wax, and and then you would sell it as though it was in, you know, its integrity was intact and it was in perfect condition, and you would say that you know that, it, that it's good. Well, a, a smart buyer would hold that pot up to the sunlight and look to see if it was sincere, if it was without wax, and that's kind of the idea here. Christ wants our love for each other to be without wax, and He wants that to be clear to everybody who sees it. Um, one of the things I love the most about our church over the years is that it's always been a sincere church. <laughs> sometimes that means it looks messy and sometimes it means that it, it's not, you know, it's kind of a beautiful mess. We like to call it sometimes, but you don't have to fake it here. We don't put on airs. We don't to pretend to be something we're not. We're a bunch of cracked pots and, and we don't have to hide that. <laughs> I know I just called you a crack pot, but it's, it's meant in love. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're broken people, and we and we know that, and it's okay for us to to be sincere about that. Uh, we don't want to stay that way. Obviously, we want Christ to change us and so forth. But but because we can be sincere in our actions, it helps us to be sincere in our affections for each other. You know how that? See how that works? And I love when I hear somebody come in and say, "This this place is real. These people are real. I I didn't feel like it was a you know everybody was pretending. And and, I, and there's not a lot of churches unfortunately that I've been in over the years that have been that way. Usually you just have to pretend like everything's good and you have your stuff together and and that's what we do. And we we don't do that here. And I I love that. And and the cool thing is that we all know if we're being honest that Christ is the best thing about us right? He's the best thing about me, and he's the best thing about you, and that makes us lovable as Christians. That's good. Well, the the other word that it gives here is earnest, which which means full of intention. Our love should be sincere. It should also be earnest. Uh, this word also kind of implies intensity, which I think is kind of funny. So it, it, fervent might be a better word, love fervently. And all I could think about, I can't remember which grandkid it was, but it was one of your kids. They would, uh, I think it was, it might have been Charlie, it might have been Theodore, when they were really little, they would they would want to just love you and hug you and they would start to kind of grit their teeth and, you know, shake because they were just want. And I, and I remember it was like, well, wow. But there was this fervency in this love that they wanted. Was it Charlie? Yeah, it was, it just I loved it, though. It was like, OK, wow, that's you can see the fervency in this love she wants to give you. And we probably shouldn't do that, <laughs> right? <laughs> that might scare people away. We can post, you know, you guys can go out and greet. And just when you see somebody in the parking lot, just, you know, start shaking and gritting your teeth and see if they come in. <laughs> but, but the question is now, you know, how do we love each other sincerely and fervently? How do we do this? And I, 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 three ways came into my mind, um, and, and it's these. Decidedly, Intentionally. And practically, Uh, decidedly means we just make up our minds to do it. Love is more than a feeling or an emotion. It's a determinate decision. It's something that we choose to do, whether we feel it or not, whether the other person deserves it or not. If you're married, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Okay. There are times when you feel in love. And it's easy to love. And there are times when you may not feel that. And you know what? You love anyway. You decide to love that person. I remind Joy often that she has to love me because Jesus said so. <laughs> and it's working. You know, 30 years in, we're doing good. So we do it decidedly, but we also do it intentionally. And when I think of intentional love, I think of the Good Samaritan. He, his love compelled him to action, compel them to do something. You can't just tell people, be warm and fed and, and walk on like you've done something, you know, and you haven't. That's not, that's not love. That's not in, you know, that, that doesn't work. Love takes effort and it takes sacrifice. So we need to find ways to express our love and to employ our love. And one of the best and most organic and easiest ways to do this is when we are in community together. Uh, You know, people always look for a shortcut as far as how to to get this into their life. And the the answer is, we say this over and over again, be the church, be with other Christians. We call it, um, you know, the idea of doing life together. Do life together. If you're not doing that, if you're avoiding the body of Christ and avoiding Christianity and avoiding, you know, this kind of, quite frankly, vulnerability and accountability and commitment, you're going to miss out on all of these things. You can't get it on a Sunday looking at the back of somebody's head, no matter how nice the back of that head looks. Uh, you're not, you're really not going to, everybody just looked at the back of the person's head in front of them. Sorry. You're not going to get that, right? We get little bits of it. And that's one of the things I love about sharing time here is that we get, we get little glimpses of it. But when we actually spend that time together, that's when it begins to happen. We, we see Jesus doing this with the 12 disciples. They hung out day in and day out. And you look at the way they loved. And and we see this, quite frankly, in the Trinity. Uh, For all eternity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have lived in this communal relationship of love. Right? And we need to do the same thing. This is where sincere and fervent love can really begin to happen. But that means, again, you have to make yourself available. You have to be willing to plug in and put yourself out into many things, as many things as possible. If you wait for people to come to you, it may not happen. And I see so many people that do that. They, they kind of just sit back and they, they hope that somebody will just invite yourself and come, join. Be intentional about pursuing relationships in the church. If it's something you struggle with, just commit to being intentional about this. Decide to do it. Find ways to, to go out of your way to make other people feel loved. If we all did this, if we had this mindset when we walked in on a Sunday that I'm going to go up and I'm going to just try to make three people today feel loved, it could be just walking up and saying, you look fantastic today. It could be, man, I'm so glad you're here today. It could be, I mean, it doesn't take much to make somebody feel loved and special. You know, throughout the week, an email, a text, a phone call, so many things that we can do just to remind other people that they matter and that they're loved. It means the world to me when, I, when it happens to me as well. So lead the charge of loving others, which brings me to the last way that, that we love others, and that is practically. Uh, theoretical love. Just not as, not as exciting, is it? I love you in theory. Well, thank you. But can we, you know, you know, can we do something? Remember what it said in First John three eighteen. little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth, actions and truth. If you're like me, um, I, I it really helps to have a target to aim at. Uh, I think, you know, sometimes I've had to learn this with my wife over the years when she gives me a target Way easier to hit the target when she doesn't. I'm shooting arrows into the air. I'm shooting them at the ground. I'm shooting them all over the place. And it's like, what makes you feel loved? Give me a target. For a long time, I was doing the dishes thinking this is what would make me feel loved. So I'll do that. That ain't it. It didn't work. You know, she just wants me to walk up and put my arm around her. That's way easier than doing dishes, by the way. So (laughs) anyway, we need a target. First Corinthians 13 gives us a target. You know, we've relegated this passage to weddings, but this is really about how Christians treat each other in the church. So listen to 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7. Love is patient and kind. It doesn't envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Jesus is the personification of this list. You take out the word love and you put Jesus' name in there. Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. Jesus doesn't envy or boast. He's not arrogant. He's not rude. He doesn't assist on his own way. He's not irritable or resentful. Jesus does not rejoice at wrongdoings, but he rejoices with the truth. Jesus bears all things. Jesus believes all things. Jesus hopes all things. Jesus endures all things. Be like Jesus, right? That's who we're supposed to be like. That's the target that we're supposed to aim at. If you want to love others practically, play follow the leader. Used to play that when you were a kid. That's the leader. Follow the leader. I find it helpful also to think about what the opposite of something is to understand something better. So, so he's telling us to love each other sincerely and fervently. Well, what's the opposite of that? Well, that's what he's going to mention in chapter 2. Peter's going to give us a list of what it looks like to not love other people. And, and quite frankly, this is what we would gravitate towards in our old nature. If we weren't born again and weren't given a pure heart, this is what we would gravitate towards. And so he's saying these are the things to take off like a garment, take them off, put them away. And and if you, when this list is gnarly, by the way, it's one of those like Sunday mornings, like, Ooh, we got to go through an ugly list today in church. Yep, we do. But when you think about it, as I read this, I thought this sums up social media perfectly. If you wanted to sum up social media right now, malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. It's like, welcome to Facebook. They should just have that, you know, as their tagline. That's it. Not always, but a lot of it. So it says in, in chapter two, verse one, so put away all malice, and all deceit, and hypocrisy, and envy, and slander. Now keep in mind that when we come across an ugly list like this in the Bible, our tendency is to say, uh, good thing this is describing other people and not me. <laughs> do you do that? <laughs> I do that. It's like, you know, wow, that's, that's a really hard list for somebody out there that needs to hear it. Um, the Holy Spirit didn't write these things for somebody else. He wrote them for you. We do the same thing with sermons, you know, man, that guy's sermon on, you know, how not to be oblivious sure would have been a good one for that other person to hear. And it's like, no, that's what you, that's the way we think. This list is for you. By saying that these things are things we're supposed to put off, it implies that they're things that we wear easily, as even as Christians in our old nature, we can wear these. So we need to think about these things like something so disgusting, so gross, that we can't wait to, to get them off of us the minute we see them on us. I don't know if that makes sense, but the idea of, like, you see it and you go, oh, that's putrid. I need to get rid of that. I have five kids and four grandkids. I thought of all kinds of examples to give you this morning, but I decided not to. You can come up with your own, but you get the idea, right? It's like, oh, what is that? You know, it's like you want to just get it off now and, and and like, throw it away. <laughs> I like what uh, Dan Doriani says about this list of vices in his commentary. He points out that these are not gross vices of paganism, but rather community-destroying vices. You see that? These are the kinds of things that will destroy a church. Maliciousness is ill will, a desire for harm. And maybe you don't start out there, but I'll tell you that holding grudges and and And, letting unresolved bitterness grow in you will lead to malice. deceit is craftiness or manipulation it's uh, the old Greek word meant to catch with bait that's kind of a weird picture, isn't it? It's like you know it's this idea of you're you're going to manipulate somebody to get in to do what you want. You're kind of treating people like pawns on a chessboard to just move them around and It's kind of a gross gross thought, isn't it? Hypocrisy means being two faced uh, the word was used to describe an actor on a stage, like a pretender. The, it's the opposite of being sincere or without wax. Envy means spite or jealousy. The idea of they have what I want and I deserve it more than they do. And then, of course, slander is backbiting, and gossiping, talking about people in ways you wouldn't talk to them to their face. None of these belong in Jesus' church. And I wish I could say that this list doesn't describe me, but that would make me even more of a deceitful hypocrite. It's it's, uh, pretty clear why these characteristics are unbecoming for someone who follows Christ. They don't look anything like him. You can't do these things and love someone at the same time. And the cool thing is that the gospel is the solution to all of these things. The gospel isn't something that just happens to you when you get saved. It's something you need to continually fill yourself with. As you fill yourself with the truth of the gospel, this is who Jesus is. This is what he's done for me. This is how he's loved me. And as I pour that into my life, guess what it displaces? This crud. It just just removes it. It gets rid of it. It's hard to focus on the gospel and do stuff like this. Well, when we put something off or take it off, we need to replace it with something. Verse 2 says that like newborn infants, we are to long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it we may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So as recipients of salvation, we have tasted that the Lord is good, so it's assumed that we will now long for this spiritual milk that he's talking about. Spiritual milk here, by the way, is not a reference to immaturity. Uh, There's other places in the Bible, Hebrews 5 and 1 Corinthians 3, where it's talking about immaturity, like they need to get off the milk and start eating meat. That's not what it's talking about here. This is a reference to the living and abiding word of God, the gospel that's mentioned in verse 23 of chapter 1. We're to long for it in the same way that a baby longs for their mother's milk. They crave it because they, they need it, and it's good for them. And as we continue to drink in the word of God, it says we're going to grow up into our salvation. We're going to grow in strength and in stature, all the ways that we want to grow and mature as Christians. We're going to become more and more like Christ. There are a lot of things we can feast on in this world. Most of it is not good for us. You don't feed a child a diet of junk food, right, and spicy food. Here, have some Tabasco on your rice cereal. You know, you, that, would be, that would be ludicrous, and you'd pay for it later. I can hear my mom's voice right now. You're going to spoil your dinner with all that junk food. You know, she used to say that. We need a steady diet of God's Word, specifically the message of the gospel. I saw this quote, and I thought it was really good. I don't remember where I got it from, but it's in quotes, so I know it's not me. (laughs) Somebody, Somebody should get credit for it, but not me. Gospel grace not only converts us at a single point in time, it also changes us over time so that we become by practice what Christ has already made us by grace. It kind of goes back to that first thought we have, of how God sees us as pure, even, even though right now it's still kind of working itself out in our lives. That's what that's talking about. The word that saved us will also transformed us. So we need to get as much of it as we can. When we taste that something is good, w- w- what does it do? What is it creating us? A <laughs> Craving for more, right? And that's the idea. Because there is nothing better for your mental health, your emotional health, your physical health definitely your spiritual health, than the Word of God. Spurgeon uh, once said, a Bible that isn't falling apart usually belongs to someone who isn't. And I think that's a pretty good word. So God's Word feeds our soul. It comforts our hearts. It protects our head. It lights our path. It does so many things for us. And it causes us to grow up in our salvation. And that means that this growth is a process. I wish it was instant. I wish that like, when you believed, boom, you were a mature Christian that didn't sin anymore. It doesn't work that way. It's part of a process. And I love it when I see growth in other Christians. You know, I always... I I can remember, I can remember like going to family reunions when I was a kid and, you know, that old lady you didn't know would walk up to you and pinch your cheek and say, my, how you've grown. I feel like that sometimes as a pastor. I, I see somebody that's just like, oh, I want to go up and grab their cheek and be like, you know, my, how you've grown. It's so cool to watch God's word transform a life and mature somebody and change them. You know, I, I, it, I was in an anger. It's funny because my kids don't even remember it completely. My boys remember it well. The girls, not so much because they're younger. I used to have a horrible temper. I was just a really angry person, and if you were to ask the boys—sorry, it wasn't—it's not in my notes, so this doesn't count. For uh, if you were to ask the boys, they would say, "Yeah, we remember that. We remember you throwing chairs across the room and losing your, you know, mind." And uh, and it's just horrible for me to think about that because I remember it too. But I asked the girls, and they're like, "No, nah, I don't remember you really getting mad at all. You just don't get angry." I there were times when I thought, "Why isn't he getting angry?" And, I mean, it's just weird to see that. But that's the gospel transforming me. It's not me, it's, it's, it's Him. So if you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, why wouldn't you devour His word every chance you get? There's an old adage that stuck with me that I heard a long time ago that, that is proven to be true. No word, no growth. Little word, little growth. Much word, much growth. And arguably the most telling sign of a Christian The growth of a Christian is the way we love others. As we become more like Jesus, we will love people like he loved them decidedly, intentionally, practically. And that kind of love is very powerful. Jesus himself said in John chapter 13, verse 34, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another by this. All people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. I want people to know that I am one of his disciples. I want them to look at me and go, oh, I know who he belongs to. Unconditional self-sacrificing love also authenticates the reality of the gospel. And unfortunately the opposite is true too. When a person calls himself a Christian, but then conducts themselves in an unloving, unChrist-like way, what does it do to their testimony? People can easily just dismiss the validity of that claim that, Christ is real. Well, as I mentioned, 2021 is upon us. We've gone through a lot of changes this year, and I'm not really a New Year's resolution kind of guy. Uh, but if I were and we were to make one as a church, it would be this, that we would be known for the way we love God, that we love each other, and that we love our community. You know, that might sound just like simplistic, but th- there's a lot of things churches want to be known for today. That's, that's a pretty good thing to be known for. That means that we would all kind of stand out as cheerful and good and kind and selfless and humble, that they would see Jesus when they, when they looked at us. Love one another. There's, there's an old story. Uh, fourth century theologian Jerome tells us about the Apostle John. And, and they said when, it, when the Apostle John was super old and, uh, and frail and unable to walk, so this would have been after Patmos... You know, they tried to kill John. He wouldn't die. So then they just brought him back home, I guess, carried him around on a mat, brought him to the weekly gatherings. And, uh, and this is what he would say. They would bring him in and they'd want to hear what the apostle John has to say, right? It's the apostle John. What's he going to say? This is what he said. Little children love one another. And the next week they'd bring him in and they'd be like, what's he going to say? Come on, John. What are you going to give us? What are you going to give us? John, give us something good. And he would say, little children love one another. And it got to the point where they would get kind of irritated, like week after week, this is all you say. And finally, somebody just asked him, it was like, you ask him, I don't want to ask him, you ask him. And they asked him, Master, why do you always say this? And the disciple whom Jesus loved replied, it is the Lord's command. And if this only is done, it is enough. Love is on display for us uh, through the communion table today. I love communion because it's just a reminder of the person and work of Christ. He loved us so much that he was willing to go and have his body uh, broken for us and his blood shed for us so that we could have life. Communion is a reminder of who he is, what he's done for us, and and now what we do from there. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to come up, and uh, we don't we all take it together, come up, and then go back, pray, enjoy, worship, and have communion. Lord Jesus, thank you so much that even though you could have easily uh, decided that we weren't worth loving, that we weren't worth dying for, uh, you didn't do that. You, you willingly went to the cross, knowing who we were, knowing uh, everything about us, and yet you still wanted to go and do that for us. And, and this is what we remember now: uh, your body broken and your blood shed for sinners like us. And we are grateful, and we pray that that the belief in this—your death, your burial and your resurrection would cause transformation in us, cause love to flow out of us. The same love that that you gave to us on the cross would flow out of us to the people around us, starting in this place right here and spilling out into the community. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.